Welcome. For those who do not know me, I am Brian Schmidt, and I'm the Vice Chancellor of the Australian National University. Uh, I've been listening to Chat 10 Looks 3 for quite a while now, and I must say, as a former French horn player who played on this very stage 32 years ago, of course, I am a brass enthusiast. I am, of course, amused that Crab and Sales pretend to hold such disdain for the tuba. <laughs> and thinking about it, every good podcast needs to have a catchy opening theme. So, just for our two special guests tonight, and to reframe their views on this most magnificent of instruments, our talented school of music head, Professor Ken Lample, has created a gift for Lee and Annabelle, their theme song for the Crab and Sales podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce Annabelle Crab and Lee Sales and the premiere of their theme song, Chat 10, Looks 3. Both of us were coming on stage very prepared to sass you about your euphonium, but I feel like you've pre-sassed us. <laughs> what is the deal with the euphonium anyway? Is it just a tiny tuba? Uh, a poor replacement for a French horn and a marching band, as so near as I can tell. What, I mean, what is the difference between all these instruments, Brian? <laughs> Don't, don't feel self-conscious. Uh, apparently, 20% of Australian men are wearing the wrong brass size. So, um, Okay, I'm thinking about this. Uh, we love a symphony of sounds, right? So you have the beautiful euphonium, and it's, it's like the viola. Uh, why do we have violas? My They're second least favorite instrument after the tuba. And I'm just going to share my well. theory on that, which I've shared with Brian, actually, in a private um, message on Twitter. Like, what is the viola? Like, you know, it adds a bit of texture, but just play lower on your violin or higher on your cello. Exactly. It's going to be a long night. <laughs> Brian, thank you very much. Thank you, <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you all for coming along. God, you people were quick on the ticket purchasing, weren't you? You people are like have the most prehensile fingers in Canberra. Let's all just think about that for a moment. Um, thank you so much for coming out. This is an amazing feeling in this room already, just even listening to you carrying on and chitter-chatting with each other. Um, before we start off, I'd like to say, as you know, um, whenever we get organised enough to travel somewhere, we try and um, assist a charity or an organisation that's doing great work locally. And before I forget, because we will get off the track, I will say that uh, tonight's function is um, benefiting Karinya House. Uh, 
I said to sales, don't worry, I'll explain what Corinna House is. Obviously, completely unnecessary, of course. Uh, <laughs> offering support to pregnant and parenting women, and you all know that. So, hooray for Corinna House. <laughs> um, and can we all say, we want to give a uh, shout-out to a chatter in the audience tonight, Hannah. Can you give us a woo, Hannah, wherever you are? Oh. She's like, oh. she's up, the oh, back she's up there. I can okay. see her. Hi, Hannah. Okay, Hannah um, has been really unwell. She had a brain tumour. She had surgery. She had a stroke during surgery. But nothing can keep that woman down. And she's come to the Chat 10 live show. We have... Um Hannah is our inaugural platinum hardcore um, cult, cult figure. Member. Yeah, yep. so congratulations, <laughs> Hannah. So who would have known that Brian Schmidt played the French horn? <laughs> the funny thing is that every time we do one of these things, I find out something alarming about somebody I know, and uh, it's something to do with music. So a couple of months ago, we did a show in Melbourne where Sales chose the moment to reveal to me uh, that she used to um, be the vocalist for a Christian youth rock band. <laughs> Just remind me what the name of that band was. <laughs> the name of the band was Breakthrough, spelt T-H-R-U. <laughs> Sales' mum thought of that name. And, um, <laughs> and she actually got the guitarist to come along and then she played a little gig with him. It was like possibly the most humiliating thing I've seen you ever do, which is like... Well, look, I didn't, I didn't want to humiliate myself quite so much tonight, but I don't like a show to go by without humiliation. And I also didn't want you to go away tonight having not learned, not continued this trend of learning some secret about somebody that you didn't already know. Um, so tonight I'm going to be revealing the secret life of the Channel 9 political editor, Chris Yulman. Chris Yulman! Chris Yulman, where are you? Here he is. Excellent. Christopher, come and join us in the light. We want everyone to see your face. Come on. I, I feel like I'm entering Duntroon circa 1978. <laughs> when Chris... my friends told me about this thing called woofering. <laughs> now, Chris, Chris, and I... Chris is, of course, the only um, hire that the Nine Network's been able to afford lately. So, um, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. My size. Yes, in fact, when, they, when, when my wife saw the, the figures that they had on that, she said, you did a crap job of negotiating. <laughs> Now, Chris and I used to work together at 7.30 uh, when, we, when Kerry O'Brien left and we both started there. And we discovered that we had some unusual things, like a lot of things in common. Um, one is that both of our fathers were in the military. Two is that both of our mothers were teachers. And three is that we both have Christian rock albums. <laughs> True story, people. Yeah. But, but mine, I, I didn't... I, I appeared on two. <laughs> Love on a Lonely Tree and Passover Saturday. And what, what were you doing on these albums? I was, I was actually in a, in a Catholic seminary at the time, not unlike Tony, well, quite unlike Tony Abbott, but, <laughs> but in a Catholic seminary. And so what, you singing or drumming or what were you doing? I was singing. I could hold a tune in those days. The other thing, where Chris and I differ, was that while I was doing Highland dancing... Oh, man, there's always one in a crowd this size. <laughs> this is going to get lots of... Chris was in a liturgical dance troupe. <laughs> what did that involve? 
Well, the liturgical dance company was called Corinthians 6. <laughs> your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Glorify God with your body. <laughs> it was after I left the seminary and I fell in with a bad crowd. Did you wreck the temple? Uh, we, we actually toured the United States. <laughs> it's, it's a lot bigger there than it is here. Are there, I'm going to ask this question carefully, any remaining moves that were signature moves that you could... Is no, there a, no. 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 Um, the humiliation will have to stop somewhere. <laughs> I don't see why. Yeah. Well, Chris, all I want to say is this will teach you for leaving us at going to Channel 9. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going home to pout. <laughs> Go in peace. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Humiliation check. Now, in case... Um, People might feel disappointed because they may have thought Chris and I were going to do a musical number. And so I don't want to let the team down, of course. Um, but just I could not believe um, this uh, text message that I received from Annabelle Crabb just last night, which said, I don't want to startle you, but I'm writing a comedic version of the 12 days of Christmas. We'll send it to you. Maybe we could rip it out tomorrow night. It's not hard to sing. Followed up by... Me proposing a song, who even am I? <laughs> and I'm delighted to say that Annabelle Crabb has indeed produced a song. <laughs> I mean, I, the difference between Annabelle Crabb and, and me is that I like... <laughs> just checking... I was looking at you for the grammar check there. <laughs> Is that when no, I do a song, got to write that time, so when I do a song on the podcast, I like a few weeks of rehearsal. I like to actually have a piano on stage to accompany me. Annabelle Crab, the, the ink is still wet on the. <laughs> That's why I thought it might startle you because she is a highly organised person, and where I start to think about what we're going to do about forty seconds before we do it, she likes to have like little things in plastic pockets and um, <laughs> and you know rehearsals and things. So, Lady, you're the one who brought a clipboard. On I know. Oh, look, it's, Mummy's been very busy. All right. Okay, here we go. So, are we going to are we going to stand? That, or, no. Okay. Um, what do you think? Yeah. yeah, stand up. Come on. This is like God. I'm a bit worried about how I'm going to how are we going to flip the pages while holding the mics. I don't know. This is the sort of stuff you should work out three weeks before. <laughs> Just put your finger in and then throw it away. Each each bit of paper can be thrown away. With of course, she's got a better system. Okay, here we go. All right. <laughs> la 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 la. Me, my me, 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 Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Unique New York. Unique New York. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> On, the On the first day of Christmas, the Senate gave to me some news about my family tree. <laughs> On the second day of Christmas, the Senate gave to me Erica Betts meets a world where the gay can marry. <laughs> On the third day of Christmas, the Senate gave to me Hanson defections to by-elections and a resurrected Barnaby. 
On the fourth day of Christmas, the Senate did decree Katie Gallagher is not from Ecuador at all Turns out she's just another pommy <laughs> On the fifth day of Christmas, the Senate came to be Sheer anarchy Section 44 shows the door to a dozen more Even President Stephen Parry on, On the sixth day of Christmas, ASIO had a lead. Six spies are chasing Dastiari. <laughs> Took the Beijing cash, had to dash, was a little rash. In some comments on the South China Sea. <laughs> you see, the thing is, Sales, you did not predict, although I suspected... <laughs> that hysterical love from the audience would give us an opportunity to change over the side. Absolutely. I, I stand corrected. As ever. <clears throat> On the seventh day of Christmas, the Senate gave to me Brandis goes berserk about a Hampton burger. Oh, what a guy. Goodness, what's the time? 209, is that Mr Pine tweeting images of pornography? <laughs> What this is really rapidly teaching me is that I have such a shocking voice and I'm just like starting to just do this so that you're very part... Anyway. And we did get that last one legal okay. as well. On the eighth day of Christmas, the telly said to me, Jeffrey Rush... Crab, I don't think that one's a good idea. Absolutely. Um, uh, don't. We're not... No, I don't think... Yeah, no, no fair no, enough. Too expensive. Okay. Uh, okay. <clears throat> on the ninth day of Christmas, I switched on my TV... George Christensen is thinking of resigning just like the last time when he didn't do it. Tell Andrew Bolt. Malcolm, Malcolm isn't shy, calls up Sky, tries to sack the guy and ends up all over page three. On the tenth day of Christmas, the PM said to me, Royal commissions are not my mission, but the Nats are wankers, so I'll screw the bankers, they can all afford it. Poor Anna Bly. Took a, Took a cushy job for a few bob. Now an angry mob has her in the dock indefinitely. This is a bad idea. <laughs> this is actually the point when I was writing it where I was thinking this is a bad idea. <clears throat> On the 11th day of Christmas, down in Benalong, I went for a gander. John Alexander felt a little skittish. Oh, my God, I'm British, but do we really need some more Keneally in our lives? <laughs> Just like, whatever I had, it's gone. <laughs> Howard's feeling smug, I'm no mug, no one ever dug any dirt around my family tree. On the 12th day of Christmas, the Parliament agreed. Gay grooms are leaping, lesbians co-sleeping Don't tell Bernardi, let's just have a party Rings on every finger, even in Warringah Call the bell ringers Will you marry me? <laughs> Homophobic <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Ready? Ready? Yeah. Got yourself together? Okay. Yep. Homophobic guys who make pies hereby stand advised. It's, it's a new, new brand of matrimony. <laughs> oh. 
Oh my God. <laughs> now, love, I know I pay out on you a lot, but that truly was brilliant. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, that was brilliant. A um, cigarette now. <laughs> now, um, our, this let, me just, let, let me just make it clear that that proposal thing going on was not a real proposal, just like if the there's anyone from the Australian any, here. Yeah, yeah. For the benefit of journalists from the Australian or the Daily Mail, we're not getting married. Not right away. <laughs> um, now, this is our final podcast of uh, 2017, and we actually have a bit of a tradition that we do at the end of the year which is we talk about our best of the year, um, of a whole range of different things. So that's what we're going to do tonight, basically. Um, and I persuaded Annabelle Crabb that we could start with a category called best clang of the year. I, of course, have a, like a really deep and probably accurate suspicion about why she wants to have this up the top. <laughs> because I got to meet Paul McCartney last week. <laughs> Oh my God. It was, I haven't even had a chance to debrief with you. It was truly one of the greatest experiences of my life because I am such a massive Beatles fan. Um, wow, I just, how unusual. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I got onto the Beatles because my, one of my good friends from school, Tim, told me that his favourite album was Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And I went through Mum and Dad's old vinyl collection and they had Help and Rubber Soul and Revolver, but they didn't have Sgt Pepper's. I went and bought it and then this put me on this lifelong Beatles thing. I just absolutely adore um, all of them, but particularly Paul McCartney. I saw him for the first time live in the US when I lived there in 2002. I cried from start to finish. I was so thrilled. I never thought I'd get to see him. We get this offer, do you want to do his first television interview in Australia? He hasn't toured here for 26 years. Do you need an oxygen mask or anything? I just, like, you're, getting a bit, you're getting a tiny bit breathy. Oh, just, my God. If I have to, like, if, if anyone's got a paper bag or something, just keep it on hand. Sorry, back to you. So I rang my friend Tim, who introduced me to them, and said, I know this sounds like a really weird offer asking you to come away for a weekend with me, but do you want to come to Perth and meet Paul McCartney? And he was just like are you joking? And had his flight booked in seconds. And so then we got to Perth. We got to go and watch the rehearsal for the concert on the Friday night, which we both just couldn't believe. We were standing backstage in the wings watching Paul McCartney do Day Tripper. And then I interviewed him on stage. And uh, it was just, I swear to God, you know how when you first fall in love with somebody, you walk around and you feel like you've got this, like you've got an internal hug going on the whole time because you're just so happy. That's what I felt like for about three days. <laughs> it was the greatest clang of all time. How about you, Annabelle? See, this is exactly what I knew was going to happen. Like, it's just like... The clang game, anyway, with you is like being asked to have a hit of social tennis with Roger Federer or something. You're just like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, no, I'll put the headband on and shorts and I go, oh, yeah, all right, aced again. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not even going to say what my clang of the year is because it's just, you know, it shrivels in comparison. Okay, Armando Iannucci. Oh, yeah! That's a good Anyway, but we didn't, like, spoon like you guys did or anything like that, so it was great, though. Um, all right, so let's. We'll, oh, oh, I forgot to say. Also, we save a bit of time at the end for questions from the audience. So, if you'd which like you've to now ask, used up by like carrying on about Paul McCartney. <laughs> if you'd like to ask questions, there's microphones one on either stage and at the top there in the middle. Um, so you just have to line up, and we'll try to come around. We'll leave about ten fifteen we'll minutes. Yeah, okay. um, they just have to be about 
Sales and Paul McCartney, but beyond <laughs> that, you know, anything that really springs to mind is fun. Um, okay, best fiction of the year. Well, I have gone on this incredible Rachel Cusk kind of obsession, and she is the greatest fiction writer I've read uh, or discovered this year. Obviously, she hasn't written all of her books in this one year specifically for my edification. I just sort of cottoned on to her this year and um, then got very involved in her entire back catalogue. So um, her novel, Outline, is, I think, my book of the year. Wow. Mm. Okay, very good. Mm. Um, I have been in a reading slump for pretty much the entire year. And when I went through my um, Kindle, because I'd say I read probably 75% electronically, um, it was littered with things that I'd started and not finished and just couldn't get into. What is it, when you're in the slump, is there any particular sort of thing that particularly makes you peter out or is it sort of everything? Well, what I've done now, and so this is going to be my book of the year just because I've got nothing, um, is I'm rereading A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving, um, which was one of my favourite books when I was young. And I find... um, John Irving, so it's easy because you're not having to concentrate so hard because you basically know the story. And John Irving is a very hooky writer. He goes, he has a lot of digressions, but he, he sort of stitches them all back in really nicely. So it's quite a pleasure to read. And it's sort of an easy page turner. So when I go on summer holidays, I want to just try to read some trashy thrillers or just something to sort of kickstart again the reading gene. But yeah, I've been struggling a bit. Do you have any tricks that you use for that? Yeah, I like a bit of an old um, favourite and go back to it. I mean, I think sometimes the the writers that you wish you, you could write like are the people that, for me, kickstart me out of a reading slump. So I might go back and read a bit of Garner or something. And there's a couple of new... There's an, at least there's sort of two new collections of Garner work out at the moment, which is always good news. You can ferret through and see if you've missed anything. Um, but um, also, like, Virginia Woolf, I find, you know, I read something of hers and the prose is just so incredibly elegant that it makes you kind of... It gets you back into the zone because you feel like you'd love to write like that and so you, you you read in search of that sort of elegance. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a sometimes it's a bit of a what else is going on in your life sort of thing as well and when you're particularly short of time, the, the, the great risk of taking on a new novel, particularly a long one, can be a bit intimidating because you think, well, am I just going to throw, you know, half an hour away of my life reading something that I'm then going to decide that I, I don't like? And it also, I find that I get... So I feel sad that I'm not reading, and then if I read, start another thing that I can't get into, I just think, oh no, it's me. It's another one. It's me. It is me. <laughs> okay, best nonfiction. Um, best nonfiction. Um, well, uh, I thought in many ways the impressive Australian nonfiction book of the year was Louise Milligan's book on Cardinal Pell. Um, and the thing that I like about that book is that it's it's a very it's a gentle advocacy book about victims that really tells their stories and kind of evokes them in a way that's really thoughtful and also gentle at the same time. And I think it was a really deserving winner of the Walkley Book Prize. Um, But I also... I mean, I know that this is a Ghana thing and and this will be the last, I think, Ghana reference because really, like... And why couldn't you get her here, Brian? God, you (laughs) failed. But... Bernadette Brennan's book about Ghana, which is called A Writing Life, is just, it's a, it's a fabulous biography that's not really a biography. It's a, a literary biography. And so it goes through her books and talks about her experience writing them in a sort of 
sort of a, a chronological order. And what it gives the really dedicated Ghana reader is a lot of the backstory of, of, of what was happening when she was writing these books and, and, and what she was obsessed with and what she was interested um, in. And also there's a lot of detail about the extent to which um, a lot of those novels are, are, are drawn from um, her own friends and family, which is obviously not um, a situation that has been entirely without controversy and difficulty over the years. But the part where um, Brennan goes through Ghana's writing of the first stone, which is now 22 years old, that was the most amazing part for me because it gave you um, a lot of insight into the process of writing that book um, and some of the some of the errors that Ghana made in, in approaching it. And I just found that it helped me to understand all of her books, um, I think, a bit more deeply. Also, over the course of reading it, I realised too that I've missed a Ghana book. There's a Ghana book that I haven't read. Which one? The Children's Bark. I've never read it. Oh, wow. So I now have that in my back pocket as a little treat. Excellent. And I'm going <laughs> to... When I really need to bust it out, that's what I'm going to do. Um, my reading slump also covered non-fiction. Oh, God. Well, this is really... She's just real been, like, eating marshmallows. And... Um, but I am going to nominate a book that I was really impressed by and that I have read bits and pieces of, which is... Um, it's actually a book for young uh, women and young young guys called Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls by Eleanor Favilli and Francesco Cavallo, which is just a very readable... It's like, you know, one page, basically, per famous person. So Amelia Earhart or Marie Curie and various other um, people. They've done a really good job, I think, of picking a diverse range of people from, you know, all over the world. Yeah, there's like some girl go-kart champion or something. I, there's, there's people from history, but also contemporary yeah. great um, women. And every entry is very well written and engaging. And I find it, I, I've tried to start reading it to my five-year-old son. He's probably a little young for it, just because I think it's good, you know, to sort of embed kids with these, this idea that, you know, girls can do anything. And I think this book does that in a really good, not preachy sort of way. Um, so I rate that. Um, yeah, my daughter's right into that book. Um, best political book. Well, I am actually in a position to uh, to announce my uh, favourite political book of the year, and it's unusual because I haven't actually read this book, but it's still given me just a deep amount of pleasure. And it is um, uh, Kevin Rudd's memoir, Volume Un. <laughs> <laughs> I just... Just the idea of a two-part political memoir is so adorable. And <laughs> <laughs> he came on 7.30 for an interview about it, and this question, we actually, for the interest of time, edited it out because it didn't really go anywhere, but I said to him... Um, I just want to see your outtakes, not the McCartney ones. It's all kissy and weird. But... There was no McCartney ones. We ran every second. Um, I asked him... Um, can I ask um, Mr Rudd... Why have you felt the need to write a, a two-part memoir? Even Nelson Mandela contained himself to one. <laughs> and what did he say? Kevin, Kevin, to his uh, great credit, laughed um, and then said something incomprehensible, which got edited. <laughs> which was perhaps the point. <laughs> oh, it's so fabulous. And, I, you know, perhaps I will read it, but it's already been such fun. Continue... Uh, <laughs> Conti continuing my slump, I didn't read any political books. <laughs> Only ones I had to read for work, and none of them particularly thrilled me. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you OK? <laughs> oh, no. Don't worry. We're about to get into some stuff I have been doing, like television. television. <laughs> yeah. OK. Um, most wonderful online thing. Oh, 
so much wonderful online stuff this year. I think, look, it's a bit of a toss-up. Um, the thing that I found the most consistently wonderful online thing was um, Sassy Trump. Do you know, have you seen Sassy Trump? Oh my God, it's such a clever comic idea. It's this comedian called Peter Serafinovich and he, all he does is he takes footage of Donald Trump's press conferences and he just replaces the voice with a slightly camp, well no, fairly camp voice. And somehow it changes the texture of all of the gestures and the pauses and the expression. It is just, you could sit there and just watch it for hours. It's the most brilliant comedy because it's one simple idea done consistently and it just absolutely is a delight. Um, the the non-funny thing that I saw online that just seized me like nothing else I've seen this year um, was a little, it's a little kind of animated film, really short film. It's maybe 10, 12 minutes long and um, it's, uh, it's on the New York Times website and it's called I Have a Message for You. And it's an interview with a 92-year-old uh, woman called Clara. She's a, a Belgian-born Jew who lives in Tel Aviv. And she's talking about her, um, her and her husband's um, escape from a, a Nazi train that was taking them um, on their way to Auschwitz. And they, um, she and her husband and her father uh, were on this train, and they knew that if they were going to escape, that they would have to leap off the train while it was still in Belgium. But her father was very, very sick, and um, terminally so. And so they faced this dreadful, dreadful choice. And um, I won't tell you any more than that, but the uh, epiphanic moment, um, I mean, it's, it's a scorching enough story to hear, and this woman is just this wonderful woman um, and she tells the story and and what happens is um, so striking that I was just in floods and I was actually found it a bit hard to talk about it or describe it after I'd seen it. I'm okay now, I'm not in floods of tears, but I would <laughs> definitely recommend you have a look. I watched it after you recommended it and it was really amazingly well done and also they use amazing use of graphics to convey the sort of historical parts of the story for which they didn't have pictures. Um, I My favourite online things were more light-hearted. One was um, I loved watching... Ben Mendelsohn appeared on Triple J and they filmed it um, and they asked him... Because you know how Ben Mendelsohn always plays these very menacing characters? They asked him to read the lyrics to I Just Can't Wait to Be King from The Lion King <laughs> and give it the full Mendo, uh, which he did. And, oh, God, it was chilling. It was absolutely chilling, but it was so funny. It was just absolutely fabulous. That would be my second favourite. My absolute favourite, um, bar none, was... Um, two things about the same topic, which was um, GQ ran a long profile about Brad Pitt, uh, which was his first interview after separating from Angelina Jolie. And, I mean, the text was just amazing enough, which I'll read a few bits in a minute, but the photo shoot, so it was called, the article was called Brad Pitt in America's National Parks. And they had taken, <laughs> taken Brad Pitt to the Everglades, to White Sands, filmed him in designer clothes, looking insane. It was just Brad doing stuff like... 
It was so weird. Or Brad, like a close-up of Brad in a nice shirt just with tears in his eyes. It was, it was, or, or just lying on the sand in strange fetal position. Like, it was really bizarre. And the it's text, like a man having a breakdown in designer clothing. So it, weird. <laughs> and, you know, under every photo of Brad having a breakdown is like, you know, Versace shoes, $2.99, you know. Um, $2.99. But it was the text. Where are you shopping? The text of the article, I mean, from the opening uh, sort of phrase, which is, Brad Pitt is making matcha green tea. Um, and then it run, it's the whole tone of it's like that. When I ask Pitt what gives him the most comfort these days, he says, I get, I get up every morning and I make a fire. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing is like that. And it, it, I mean, it, it was... It was riveting in just a terrible way for Brad. Anyway, so that was just awesome enough. Then Marina Hyde... Imagine if you got to interview him, Sales. <laughs> I can't interview anyone after Paul McCartney. It's all just a steep downhill slide towards death for me now, I'm afraid. Um, wow, have you mentioned that to the Prime Minister who you interviewed the following night? <laughs> lie awake worrying about Prime Minister <laughs> that I'm not as satisfying to you as Paul McCartney <laughs> should have been his answer I'll butt out now shall I so, helping you in your job since 2017 <laughs> so Marina Hyde in the Guardian wrote a uh, critique of this piece that appeared in GQ which uh, the theme of which was you know basically who who among his people, his agent, his manager, whoever, anybody, as she says, anybody even remotely responsible for pastoral care allowed this thing to happen? <laughs> and, you know, when you, when you contemplate those sort of the words and the photos, she describes it as, the entire feature has been conceived by the last three people connected with Fashotainment Publishing not to have seen Zoolander. <laughs> See, I printed out a copy of this for me too, so I'm just sitting there following with my lips as she reads because it's the funniest thing. Ever. The other bit that was, I mean, there's just, the whole article is brilliant, but the other bit that was my favourite is, um, at one point, Brad explains to the interviewer, I went through two therapists to get to the right one. Yes, the right therapist is so important, and I'm thrilled he burned through a couple of duds before apparently settling on one who would green light his decision to discuss the intimate details of his private life while hawking Ralph Lauren in a dank cavern. <laughs> And she absolutely flames the interviewer as well. At least 70% of the questions initially appear to have been asked as a dare. <laughs> what is pain, emotional and metaphysical? But as time wears on, it's impossible not to conclude the interviewer really is this much of a dick. <laughs> Consider the bit where he simply says to Brad, metaphors of my life. <laughs> and then decides to include that statement in the final copy. <laughs> Brilliant. Best TV series. I don't know. I, could, I want to read more of that so bad. Um, <laughs> hey, I really love Bloodline, which is what gave me the sense of deep fear about Ben Mendelsohn. And I right. think that that whole Lion King thing wouldn't have been as creepy to me if I hadn't been absolutely shotgunning episodes of that excellent <laughs> television series. But look, um, I think all things considered, uh, The Handmaid's Tale is the television show of the year. That's my view. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I loved that as well. I thought that was very good. Um, 
I absolutely loved The People versus O.J. Simpson. I, I, I don't know if it was as good as, uh, say, The Crown or The Handmaid's Tale, but I was so surprised at how much I liked it because had you said to me before I watched it, uh, would you like to know one more second of information about O.J. Simpson? I would have said absolutely have zero interest. And I can't even tell you what got me over the bar to watch it because it would have been a very high bar. But it just... I've discussed this on the podcast before. It hooked me from the first frame. It, it's just the amazing sort of behind-the-scenes... It's a drama. It's not a doco. Um, you know, the whole OJ tale. I don't know how they do it, but they build so much tension that even in episode two when they're in the Bronco chase on the freeway, I was on the edge of my seat, like, just terrified. And I'm thinking... I, I, you know that he doesn't shoot himself in the back of the Bronco. Like, what's with the tension? But uh, they just have done such an incredibly skillful job of it, so I absolutely loved that. The other thing I wanted to mention that I thought was one of the most affecting things I've seen on TV in a long time, um, there's a comedy show called Master of None. Um, season two came out, and it's basically the lead character, played by Aziz Ansari, um, goes to Italy, and he becomes friends with this Italian girl who he's actually... She's engaged to somebody, but he's secretly in love with her. Anyway, they go out, it, it, as these things do, it becomes increasingly painful because he, you know, wants to be around her, but he just, it's unbearable because it's, it's, he doesn't think the feelings reciprocate. Anyway, they have this wonderful night out and he says goodbye and then he's in the taxi on the way or the Uber or whatever it is on the way home and it stays on one shot of him in the back seat of the Uber. It's got to be about three minutes long and just you can see all the thoughts you have on those kind of nights where, oh, wasn't that great? Oh, God, you know, this is terrible. Uh, and just all that sort of feeling and it just never cuts away from his face. It was amazing. And such kind of ballsy television as well because it's just... To waste that much screen time on just a single static shot of a face is just so bold that, you know, after about a minute of it, you're just, like, opening the popcorn and thinking, wow, how yeah. long are they going to keep this up? At a certain point, you think, wow, they're, they're clearly they've made, they're not cutting away. They're not cutting away at all. Are they going to go the whole way home without yeah. cutting away? And it's so like, you, you become sort of riveted by it. Um, it was really, really brilliant. It's a bit like done. Marina Abramovich's, you know, home video channel where, you know, she just stares into the <laughs> camera, just like, now I'm making some tea, I'm still staring <laughs> into the camera with my unchanging expression. Mm. Uh, uh, best movie? Well, as you know, I don't like movies anymore. Um, <laughs> but that's not true, really. I just, you know, now I just say that to irritate you pretty much. But um, I reckon the movie that I liked most um, this year was Hidden Figures. Um, did everyone see that? Like, it was just, no, it's what's this, it about? It's such a cool movie. It's funny and kind of revelatory. It's about these four women who are scientists at NASA and they are... Black women who, well, they're not, they're, they're kind of, they're calculators. They do adding up for uh, all the important sending people to the moon jobs. And, but they also are black women, so they are treated as second-class citizens within NASA. And um, Kevin Costner comes to the rescue in the end, you'll be pleased to hear, which is the only kind of like, oh, God, note of the film. But it's just, I actually watched it with my kids, and I think I got to, I've got to the point where my kids are old enough to... You know, when we, we can sit down and watch a movie and it doesn't have to be sort of, like, f freaking dreadful kind of kid stuff. You can kind of... Sorry, that came out wrong. <laughs> I'm very supportive of my children and their tastes in, in cinema. <laughs> but, you know, and it kind of led to all these conversations and it was a little bit of a history lesson and it was also really funny and just very enlightening and I loved it. Um, along with books, I'm also in a movie slump. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, just what? It's yeah, just television I need, these days. I need drugs. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, 
So I want to keep talking about TV. Um, I was going <laughs> <laughs> to say, instead of um, movies, mo- television for me has replaced movies. I don't know if it's destroyed my attention span, but about an hour, 50 minutes, whatever, is the top that I can tolerate. Um, so The Handmaid's Tale was what I put down because, you know, that is... Because it's the new movies. It is. It is. Yeah. It, Gosh, is. it absolutely is. Um, and I thought that was just amazingly executed, absolutely brilliant. Um, and also, after I watched The People versus O.J. Simpson, I watched a documentary series called O.J. Made in America, um, which gave the most brilliant historical context and it had the most amazing archive that I had not seen and it helped me understand... Cause I think for an Australian audience, it's sort of hard to understand why was O.J. Simpson so big and it explains all of that really well and it was just really incredibly done. It had a lot of the key players from the era as well and so I thought that was fantastic. And there's a lot of stuff about his his college football career and I think here we don't really necessarily yeah. register how enormous that is like he was a, a nationally famous university college uh, football player and he was also the like one of a very small handful of black students on campus as well so there was this weird kind of narrative that suggested that he had been really in predominantly white environments for such a long time that he kind of had this sort of strange identity. Um, and I think it all feeds into the the oddness of, of, of what became of him. But it, mm. it fills in a lot of that background, a lot of history about, you know, who he was and, and just how intensely famous he was at such a young age, which mm. would have a weird effect on anyone, really. Now, we're going to keep whipping around a few things before we um, have time for audience questions. Um, Best art exhibition? Uh, I reckon um, the one at the Art Gallery of New South Wales that we went to see together, the Preston, Cossington Smith and Georgia O'Keeffe exhibition was probably the one that hit most of my buttons Mm -hmm. most deftly. (laughs) I I loved uh, Dior at the National Gallery of Victoria. It was absolutely gorgeous and amazing. Um, Favourite podcast? Well, wow, you're really whipping us through, aren't you? Yes. Like a, yeah. Um, I, uh, I've, I think I have to hand it to Malcolm Gladwell uh, for his second series of revisionist history. There's one episode, or like the series opens with his rant about golf, which is very entertaining. Like he's just got an almost obsessive and vicious hatred of golf, and so he does. <laughs> I mean. You know that you're kind of in a certain league where you can just indulge your ir- irrational hatred of golf for like half an hour and it's still really interesting. <laughs> Actually, he looks into um, golf courses and how in LA there are these incredibly um, large and lush private golf courses which um, on which sort of standard rates aren't paid and so he questions why these huge tracts of, of land are, are cut off to ordinary people um, and given big subsidies for those who putt around on them. Um, anyway, it, it's great. But the great, the really terrific um, episode in this latest series, and I think actually, if anything, the second series is actually better than the first, is that there are there's a whole series on kind of US race relations and there's an episode um, called... Just check. I've got it written down. I, want, I don't want to mess up the title. Miss Buchanan's period of adjustment, which talks about the case of Brown and the, and the um, Board of Education, and looks into the historical or the consequences of that we think of landmark 
decision allowing black kids to go to white schools. He looks at what the consequences were, particularly for black teachers who, having taught at the black schools, weren't then offered terribly many jobs at the white schools. So it's just a, it does exactly what that podcast says on the tin, which is look at a historical story we think of as settled and show you another flash of it. It's absolutely exhilarating. And at the end, the punchline or the reveal at the end is actually goose-pimplingly um, shocking and amazing. Uh, for my favourite podcast, I'm going to go with S-Town, um, which, as I prefer to call it, what about the clockmaker? <laughs> um, it, it was fantastic. Basically, if you're not familiar with it, uh, NPR reporter goes down to the American South to investigate what he thinks is a murder case, and it turns into something much richer and stranger. It was a very, it was actually a very novelistic sort of work as well. Maybe that's why I'm not reading books, because I'm consuming other culture that's so, filling Okay, the... my question to you is... Because I hear this from people who say, well, I don't read books that much anymore, but I do read a lot. Is that, I mean, is there a difference really between book reading and, you know, people read long articles because they're available um, so much more easily than they used to be? I think there's a certain level of immersion you get with a book that you don't get with a long article. Like the idea that often if I'm reading a book that I really love... I will be having a conversation like this and just thinking in the back of my head, how much longer, how much longer till I can get home and get back to my book? (laughs) Um, And I don't think even a really great article doesn't generally give you that feeling because you don't, it's not sort of ongoing. And I think you don't build, you know, when I've read books that I really love, I feel like I have a relationship almost with the characters that you feel like you're going to miss them. Even, you know, again, with television, I remember The Sopranos thinking at the end, uh, that I missed Tony and Carmela Soprano. And I'd find myself occasionally like thinking of them like, oh, and same with um, Friday Night Lights with Coach and Tammy. I'd be like, oh, I wonder what Coach and Tammy are doing now. <laughs> oh, they're fictional. Nothing. <laughs> uh, best recipe? I'm going to say crack, obviously. That was amazing, yeah. Well, I've been... Um, uh, this isn't a specific recipe, but I've been doing so many things with pumpkin recently because I had a, uh, a procurement issue with uh, pumpkins at Halloween and I ended up with a very kind friend brought around some pumpkins for uh, the children to carve but they were like Queensland blue ones like you just can't you just need you know crampons and an ice axe you know (laughs) so um, I've been making things out of them instead and the children are starting to get like deeply suspicious of like anything with a vaguely yellow hue that I produce (laughs) what's on this cheese and tomato sandwich (laughs) Pumpkin kid, choke it down. Um, um, but okay, I'm like, I haven't finished talking yet. Jesus, it's just like right, 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 right. It's like I'm, you know, Philip Ruddock, and you're trying to get me to wind up. Who's <laughs> the great expert at sort of filibustering in uh, restricted time interviews? I didn't realise you sort of based your conduct in life on Philip Ruddock. No, I didn't. <laughs> It's not that. It's just that sometimes when, you know, I watch you interviewing people and you can tell, you can tell the people who are most expert at not saying anything for seven minutes, like, and it's a real skill. It's actually a real contemporary political skill, I reckon. It's, yeah, a, it's quite a, a terrible one. a new thing because they know that they only have to 
be there for seven minutes. And so that's where like, you'll ask something, I'll say, well, I'm glad you asked me, you know, you'll ask A. I'm glad you asked me B, Lee, because, you know, blah, 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 blah. Kerry O'Brien told a story the other night, I'm not sure if it made the edit, but in the final episode of Late Line where we were reflecting on the past of Late Line, and he had Tim Fisher on one night who tied himself into terrible knots on something to the degree that he actually said to Kerry... Um, Kerry, you know, I mean, I don't want to get bogged down in this because I know that we don't have a lot of time. And Kerry replied, take all the time you need. (laughs) (laughs) Best discovery. Recipe. Oh, she said pumpkin. She said all of her stuff with pumpkin. Hang on, I was going to be... I I recently have um, found something that uses up a lot of pumpkin. (laughs) Lee's executive producer, front row. (laughs) But I'm glad you persisted, actually, because there is a specific recipe. Jesus Christ. I've been making... I've been making oh, God, you're a monster. Stop it. Just let me finish. What? what? It's 8.29. We've plenty of time. Well, I just don't want people to be deprived of their chance to ask questions. <laughs> so, anyway... I've been, I've been making pumpkin spice cookies. They are very easy to make. They're... Easily, there seems to be a bunch of recipes that are around. They're very kind of chewy and a bit cakey. They have a whole cup of pumpkin in them, but they've got you know sort of ginger and nutmeg and they and allspice and cinnamon and they taste very Christmassy and they're a beautiful golden colour and they're delicious. I'm out. <laughs> we'll post the recipe. Best discovery. I reckon um, the writer Jenny Zhang is my kind of... I, I feel like I discovered her, but I didn't. I just picked up the book and went, oh, wow. She's a, just she's a, an American um, writer and she's written a book of short stories called Sour Heart, all told from the perspective of um, Chinese immigrants in America, largely in New York, and they, are, they range from incredibly tender to very... Um, I just... Brutal, I guess, would be one word, but she is just an absolutely extraordinary writer. I think she's about, like, 22 or something. God. Um, But anyway, Jenny Zhang, Z-H-A-N-G. Well, now I feel very shallow because my best discovery is um, the pistachio pistachio praline ice cream at Gelato Messina. I don't know if you have that in Canberra. Do you have Gelato Messina in Canberra? Okay, so if you go to Sydney, um, you've got it. It's, oh my, it is the best ice cream ever. Um, best musical performance. Um, I, I. <laughs> well, I'm um, just on the edge mm, of my seat. Mm, let me think. I won't say the obvious, but um, that one. And uh, also, I went to the Dixie Chicks with my friend Sabra Lane, who's here. Who, Sabra Lane! <laughs> who introduced me to the Dixie Chicks many, many years ago, and we both absolutely adore them. And we said if ever they toured, we'd go and see them. And then they just never toured. And so it got to the point where we said, because I think they had small children, we said anywhere in the world that they tour, we'll go and see them. Um, and they finally started touring last year. And so Sabra said, I think it's supposed to come to Australia. I couldn't go at the time that um, they started the tour, unfortunately. But So they did come to Australia this year. And so we went and had a weekend in Melbourne with our other very good friend, Kath. We've all been friends for 20 years. And so the concert was absolutely brilliant. We adored it. But it was also the sharing of it with your very good friends. It was just really one of the greatest weekends ever. And you've had a couple of good weekends. I have had a few good weekends. So for you, best musical performance? Well, actually, I saw a performance in the last week that I'm putting down as my um, 
best musical performance of the year. It's actually a, a play, like a show at um, Belvoir Street Theatre in Sydney, and it's called um, Barbara and the Camp Dogs, and it stars Urs Ursula Jovic, who's um, a great Indigenous actor, um, Elaine Crombie, who has just... Um, burst to fame on ABC iview as Nakia Louie's uh, vagina in the uh, series Kiki and Kitty. I know it sound, that sounds odd, but uh, she is playing um, that body part of Nakia Louie, and it is a really funny iview series. I'm sorry to make it sound unusual, but that's just what it is. And um, I started watching it after seeing Elaine Crombie uh, on stage. Now, the thing about these two women in this show, um, the story of it is that they're two sisters, they're singers, and the whole um, stage is built up as a, uh, a set, like a, um, for a, a pub band, and half the audience, or about a third of the audience, actually sits on the stage in sort of cabaret-style seating. And of course, I got this little slip of paper in my ticket saying, you'll be seated on the stage. And I thought, oh, my God, this is actually my idea of hell. It's um. like a musical theatre piece, basically, and I'm going to be on stage, you know, visible to others as I suffer. Um, it turned out to be the greatest place to sit. And these two women are incredible. Like, I think I've seen both of them on stage before, but I had no idea they could sing like that. It's an extraordinary show. And, like, it's full of adventure in the story. They go and um, they're trying to get to um, uh, Catherine to visit their dying mother. And many uh, misadventures occur along the way, but it's just an incredibly powerful piece of theatre and um, great music, and I thought, I'm enjoying a piece of musical theatre. There is, there is <laughs> well, a you, sentence that you You've admitted to enjoying to musical theatre and you wrote a song for this evening and performed it. My work here is done, is ladies and gentlemen. Um, if you want to ask a question, feel free to line up and we'll come to you in a second. While we, and we we'll, can't promise to get to everyone who wants to ask one, but um, we'll try so to. so presumptuous. I'm sure there'll be thousands of people lining <laughs> up. So please, prepare yourself for disappointment because, um, you know... Political everyone. moment of the year. Oh, look, there were so many this year, really, weren't there? But if you had to choose one, I think... Uh, look, the extensive yes votes in the electorates of Tony Abbott and <laughs> Kevin Andrews and George Christensen. Now, I have, you know, nothing but admiration for all three of those men, but sometimes, you know, when we're in a terrible state and, you know, I know that public confidence in our democratic system is, you know, at a bit of a low ebb, and we go through these sort of undulations as a country, um, there are times where, you know, um, uh, the mighty public are a, a great <laughs> factor in our political process. Um, I found um, Emma Hassar speaking in the federal parliament about her personal experience of domestic violence very affecting. She said that 29 of her 36 years had been marred by domestic violence. And so having somebody with that experience willing to publicly share it in the parliament, I think, is a very powerful and, and important and useful thing to do. For the same reason, I um, found Jackie Lambie's farewell speech moving, and I think it showed the value of... It's good to have people in parliament who aren't career politicians because they just bring something different to it, and I think that something that's sadly lacking. And also I've been um, 
just really happy to see Linda Burney back in the past few weeks. I just think she's awesome. I love her. And um, she's had such a terrible time losing her son recently. So it was just really heartened to see her back and looking well. And I thought that was um, fantastic. And then very quickly, before there's a question over there, I see. Um, what are your summer culture plans? Have you got anything on the burner? Um, I cannot wait to see Armando Iannucci's new film about the last days of Stalin, which is unthinkably a comedy. Has it opened overseas yet? Yeah, it has. has. it had good reviews? And it's sort of infuriating because I've read reviews of it abroad and I don't know exactly when it opens here but I will be outside the cinema, you know, <laughs> with my popcorn when that happens. I feel I'm actually placing... It strikes me an uh, unnatural and unfair amount of pressure on this film to rehabilitate <laughs> the entire film industry for me. It's just like it can't end well, but I, you know, my hopes are high at this point. Um, I'm also um, about to read a book that I was sent, which I think is coming out um, in the new year. It's called The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. And it's a sort of a murder mystery, but it, seems it has the most ambitious plot structure of anything that I've ever sort of skimmed the back page of, um, and I'm just diving in. So it's a sort of a, um, a Gosford Parky sort of setting, you know, a kind of um, stately home, there's a house party, the place is full of guests and lords and ladies and footmen and so on, and a murder happens, and um, the central character is reborn every day as a new member of the household, like inhabits the, the body of a different member of the household and the day starts again, the day of the murder every day, like that ridiculous oh. film with Bill Murray, Groundhog Day. Yeah. And wow. basically the central character has to solve the murder by inhabiting in turn... I know, just you would just need so many post-it notes for that wow. um, plot structure. And I just oh. think... And then there's a lot of sort of praise for this book, like, oh, my God, it's the most incredible, blah, 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 it's so gripping and so amazing and so clever. And I'm thinking, okay. Yeah, let's see it. Let's sit down and see if you work out. I didn't. It makes me think of Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, which I didn't like all that much. Um, just speaking of... <laughs> wow. <laughs> speaking... Look, a, a shorter list would be... <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me also when you said skimming the back cover. I forgot to mention, I forgot to bring it on stage. Um, the uh, Paper Chain Bookstore is selling our um, books and some other books that we've talked about out the back. Um, and we'll be around for book signings afterwards. But somebody at Paper Chain Bookstores, Amelia, has made a fake dust cover for On Doubt, my little book, that if you buy, you get, and it makes it look like Flora's Fancies. And it, and it includes, you know, like crabs, you know, this turd has dropped from the heavens or whatever she said. A literary turd has dropped into the atmosphere. Um, it's very, very funny and amazingly and hilarious and well done. And it includes like a little bit of text from the, the actual book. It really looks like a proper book dust cover. It's very, very funny. Made me laugh. Greatest, Thank you, Amelia, the if, you're, of work. if you're listening. Um, I, over summer, want to watch the new season of The Crown. I want to read Deadly Kerfuffle by Tony Martin. Um, I want to try to end my reading slump by just reading some thrillers. Um, and I'm going to New York briefly, and I've only booked tickets to two things. Um, the Hockney Retrospective at the Met, um, and to see Hello, Dolly! starring Bette Midler on Broadway. <laughs> OK, it's time for questions. How about over here? Hi, so if... Because of some terrible reason, one of you couldn't continue doing the podcast, but you both wanted it to continue. Who would you replace yourself with? Oh, oh yourself. Oh, wow. 
that is such a good question. Wow. That is an incredible question. Okay. You'd replace yourself. Well... Celia Pecola. I bags her. (laughs) I would think I'd have to try to replace myself with somebody like myself so you got the same dynamic going. So I'd pick probably um, my colleague Lisa Miller, the ABC's London correspondent, who's one of my dearest, dearest friends. And I don't think we've ever disagreed about anything in our life. So I think I could very comfortably allow Lisa to step in. (laughs) Is she a book chucker? Where's she stand on finches? Oh, she's very... She's very pragmatic and practical, and she's not at all... She grew up on a farm, so animals, that make their food or they work. <laughs> they don't flit well, I around. I grew up on a farm. <laughs> they don't flit around looking cute. <laughs> OK, upstairs. upstairs. Um, perhaps eclipsed by uh, earlier this evening, there was a, a classic musical moment in the Parliament earlier this week. Um, should there be more songs in Parliament? And did they pick the right one, or should it have been a McCartney I, I, look, I, I liked when everyone broke into song, of course, <laughs> in the parliament. <laughs> what I liked was the sort of sense of mild uncertainty about what to sing. Like, what is the right song for that moment, you know? Well, when they, well, when they just... started, like, we are one, we are many, I thought, does anyone actually know the rest of the words until they hit? I went to a, um, a function, um, a, one of those black and white fundraising functions, um, <laughs> regional New South Wales recently and they went through three, three verses of that song and I was okay for the first one but then I was like yeah totally which actually reminds me of one of the funniest things that is on the internet ever and it's a very obscure video but it's of um, the former a really really former many many years ago uh, I think even possibly in the late years of maybe in the major government uh, the minister for Wales um, who is called not Wales as in but like <laughs> Wales is in, Wales is in, sorry, that's an elephant whale in case you're <laughs> Wow, this is really working out in audio, isn't it? Um, the minister for the, the region of Wales. Um, and he was attending like a, some sort of Welsh national function and they were playing the Welsh national anthem and the camera was on him the whole time and he had no idea oh. of the words. And he was the Minister for Wales. Oh. And it's the greatest and most agonising piece of video footage I've ever seen because he's going... <laughs> anyway, so uh, that is not relevant at all, obviously, to your question. Um, I do think the greatest musical moment that has... Um, uh, blessed our body politic in the last year is definitely Malcolm Turnbull being asked his favourite Akadaka song. Like, oh, just like, yeah. well, what's yours? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're not going to be on Back in Black, obviously. The, I mean, look, any press advisory let him go on Triple M or whatever it was, was like, dude, he is going to get asked about an Akadaka song. <laughs> you need to prep him like Malcolm. It's a little You should way. just have one tattooed on your arm, like, <laughs> just in case of emergencies. Um, but also that the that his replacement song was um, you know what's his name Greek, mental as anything like oh, oh dear last question is from this young gentleman over here um, I was just wondering what was one one hidden talent that very few people know about each of you God that's a good question oh. that is such a good question well um, I will have you know that thanks to my uh, 
upbringing on a farm on the Adelaide Plains and my parents' insistence on recruiting me for menial farm labour for many, 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 <laughs> many years of my early life, I can reverse a trailer through a gate. <laughs> wow. That is, that is genuinely impressive. Yeah. It's very hard. No way I could do that. I when I was merely the host of 7.30, used to have some hidden talents, but since I started doing this podcast, I've just revealed them all. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't really have any. You know about the Highland dancing, you know about the organ playing. I've got nothing. <laughs> have, we talked about, have we talked about your little Torbman's issue? <laughs> yeah, we have. <laughs> have we really? Yeah, I made some butterflies one time out of Torbman's paint cards. You know those little yeah. paint samples you get at Bunnings or whatever? Like, and you sort of go in there and you're like, I might just take one, I might just take five. I might, can I take 20? I don't know. How much is this free paint sample kind of thing? Didn't I, like, didn't I, for the 2014 Christmas episode, make you those fairy wrens out of Torben's paint samples? Yes, you did. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, so, that wasn't memorable I can moment. make art out of things I've stolen from Bunnings. <laughs> And on that note, let me thank ANU for allowing us. No, can we really sincerely thank ANU? They have been absolutely delightful to deal with, so accommodating and incredibly helpful. And it's been such a pleasure to be able to be here in this beautiful facility. So thank you very much to ANU. (laughs) 